So the question I would like us to think about this morning, as presciently portended in this week's weekly email, if you read it, is this. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? Now, it doesn't take a PhD in theology to realize that faith is pretty important for Christians. We even call it the Christian faith, don't we? But I don't know about you, uh, when I was a young Christian, whenever I heard a speaker say that they were going to talk about faith, my heart would start to sink. Because if there's one thing that we all know, or, or we think we know, it's that we don't have enough of it. It's kind of a truism, isn't it? However much we've got, it almost certainly isn't enough. But I hope that by the time we finish this morning, we'll be looking at what it means to have faith in some new ways. That, I hope, will encourage us, and perhaps for many of us, release us from the guilt that well-meaning but misguided speakers may have put on us over the years, blaming our lack of faith for things that have happened, and that if only we'd had enough faith, then they wouldn't have happened. And if you've ever been there, then I think you'll know what I mean. But of course, all of that said, there is no doubt that faith is important in the Christian life. The Bible is very clear about that. A good example is Habakkuk 2 verse 4 in the Old Testament. And, and that's also quoted three times in the New Testament as well, so it must be important. The righteous will live by faith. So if we want to be right with God and right with each other and we want to live right and do what's right, then we need to be living by faith. And then Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. So if we want to please God then faith is essential. So the importance of faith is not in doubt. The Bible is very clear about that. Faith is non-negotiable. But of course, saying that only takes us so far. What we still need to know is, what is faith? And what does living by faith actually mean? So I want us to start by looking at the standard Christian narrative, the way that most people tend to think about faith, and the three assumptions that they make or that they've been told. The first assumption is that faith is to do with having mental certainty. And in the context of prayer, what that means is having mental certainty about getting the answer that you are praying for. And a perfect example of that is how the Living Bible translates Hebrews 11.1. 1. Or perhaps I, I should say the way that it paraphrases it, because the Living Bible is not a translation. So it's not actually what the original says, it's what the man who wrote it thought that it meant by what it says. And the Living Bible was a, a personal paraphrase by a man called Kenneth Taylor, who originally wrote it for his children. And by the way, don't, uh, don't confuse the Living Bible with the New Living Translation, the NLT. That began as just an update to the Living Bible, but it ended up very different and very good as well. And that's because this time it was done by a group of translators, by 90 biblical scholars. 
Anyway, this is Mr. Taylor's personal paraphrase of that verse, Hebrews 11.1. Faith, he says, is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. Confident assurance that it's going to happen. Now, the very first Bible that I was given when I became a Christian um, a few years ago um, was a living Bible. So I grew up assuming that he must be right, that having faith was indeed unshakable mental certainty, that what I'd prayed for was definitely going to happen, that having faith or not having faith was all to do with what was going on up here. Never allowing any doubts to come into your head in case it then didn't happen and your lack of faith was the reason why. Now this was me a couple of years ago now um, before my six-pack became a 12-pack. I assumed that faith was um, like walking a mental tightrope that you could fall off at any moment unless you managed to cut out all uncertainty in your mind, any questions or negative thoughts, and especially any negative confession. You just had to completely believe that God would do, quote, what he says in his word. Uh, and what people mean by that is you, you find a verse, you claim it as true in your situation, and you refuse to allow for any other possibility. And that, some would say, is having faith. Which leads on to assumption number two, which is that something called faith has power in and of itself to make things happen. And correspondingly, that a lack of faith will stop it happening. And this idea that faith has power is based on the assumption that God has put in place some kind of cosmic mechanism or universal law by which he has bound himself to act. So if you've got it, you'll get it, and if you haven't got it, you won't get it. You'll often hear Christians saying that to receive what we're praying for, there has to be faith exercised by someone. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, what they mean by that is either faith on the part of the person praying or faith on the part of the person being prayed for. So, if that is right, the only reason a prayer doesn't get answered can only be lack of faith on the part of the person praying or on the part of the person being prayed for. Assumption number three, again, follows on from these first two. That faith is about quantity that's measurable on a scale, with perfect faith at one end and no faith at the other end. Which kind of begs the question, how far along that scale do we need to be? So let's analogise it to GCSEs. Now, unhelpfully, the government has recently changed the marking system since most of us did our GCSEs. They're now graded 9 to 1 rather than A star to G. And just to confuse matters, there's now apparently two pass marks. 
only a government could have two pass marks, you may think. I've included a comparison here for those of us who are more familiar with the old system. And as you can see, a standard pass is a grade four, and a strong pass is a grade five. There is still the option at the bottom of achieving a U, which presumably means you didn't even spell your name right at the top of the paper. So, here's the question. If you sat a GCSE in faith, what grade do you think you'd get? Would you pass? One or two are probably thinking, I'd probably get a U. And if you get a strong pass, do you get bigger prayers answered or more prayers answered than just having a standard pass? What if you get a grade three or below? Do you get any prayers answered? How do we even know whether we've reached the pass mark? Presumably, just by working backwards from whether or not the thing that we want actually happens. But it does make you wonder how people in the Bible would have got on. I mean, Jesus himself would obviously have been a nine, at least. Obviously, in a class of his own, so no one else gets a grade nine. The Apostle Paul, you may think, should be next. After all, he did write most of the New Testament. But then again, he never actually got healed from his thorn in the flesh, did he? Even though he prayed three different times for God to take it away. So that lack of faith, that failure to have confident assurance that something he wanted was going to happen, that bumps him down a bit. So let's be generous and give him a seven. And then there's the disciples. Hmm. Tricky one, this. Because it was to them that Jesus famously said, O ye of little faith, in the King James. Now, he didn't actually say it in the King James. He said it in Aramaic, but you get the point. And he said it to them more than once. So if you read the Gospels cover to cover, there are times when you'd struggle to give them more than, say, a three. But they were the people that Jesus chose to build his church on, and I'm sure he must have known what he was doing. So we'll give them a five. Now, of course, I am being a bit flippant here, so I hope that no one's offended. I'm just trying to illustrate the kind of problems we get into. The importance of faith is not in doubt, okay? The Bible is very clear on that. Faith is non-negotiable for us as Christians. But the question is, what is faith? And what does living by faith actually mean in practice? And you may have noticed, as we ran through these standard assumptions about faith, you may have noticed that none of them are actually stated in the Bible like that. So they are just assumptions. And they're actually based on a way of thinking about the word faith that comes more from Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, than it does from Hebrew thinking. But you may still be thinking, blah-dee, 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 blah, Steve, I'm still not convinced. Because in my church background, we were always told to think about faith like that. It may be difficult but so what? Well, the so what is the harm that it does. 
to Christians and to God's reputation as well. Problem number one is that although it provides a convenient explanation for why prayers don't get answered, it does that at the cost of heaping the blame on the person praying, or even worse, on the person being prayed for, so that it becomes their fault and not God's. It could have happened, it would have happened, if only they'd had enough faith. Problem number two is that it doesn't actually make God look good either. So Jesus loves us enough to die on the cross for us, but he withholds answers to our prayers unless we achieve a minimum level of faith on this scale, without ever telling us what the pass mark is. So answers to our prayers are kind of like God dangling a carrot on a stick just in front of our noses. If only we'd had just that little bit more. Sorry, guys, maybe next time. Problem number three is that it depersonalizes prayer. It turns God into a prayer-answering machine that just has to be programmed right with enough faith. It turns prayer into a mechanism and a transaction instead of a relationship. So instead of beginning with our Father, it begins with our faith. It's actually putting our faith in faith rather than in God. And it delegates answers to prayer to an impersonal system that God has put in place. Problem number four is that this idea that faith is mental certainty is telling us that God requires perfect beliefs that we're never allowed any questions or any fears about life or any doubts about God or the Bible or pretty much anything. Because if we do have them, then they may jeopardise the outcome. They may stop happening what would have happened because I've allowed them to come into my head. And then problem number five is that it encourages people to claim promises from the Bible to take nice verses out of their original context and turn them into universal truths that God must honour. It encourages us to think that we can improve the odds of our prayer being answered if we just name these promises and claim these promises. And again, all of this is depersonalising God and it's turning our relationship with a heavenly father into a relationship with a process or a system that God has put in place. Now, of course, there are promises in the Bible and wonderful promises that are there to encourage us. But God knows that very well, just as well as we do. He's very familiar with his word. He doesn't need to be reminded or told what to do because of them in particular situations. So to sum up why I think these ways of thinking are wrong and why we need to be set free from them and released from them, it's because they're describing a God dealing with us in a transactional way rather than a relational way. They're actually describing a God who relates to us through a set of rules and laws instead of a God who specifically says our relationship with him is not based on rules and laws. 
that in fact it's based on faith instead of rules and laws. They're describing a God who seems to have expectations of us that we know and he must know, realistically, we can never meet. A God who actually seems to be more like the Pharisees, who expected things of the ordinary people that they could never live up to. They're describing a God who doesn't seem to know what it's like to be human, to have an inquiring mind and who doesn't allow us to have any questions, even really good questions. They're describing a God who actually seems to lack compassion and understanding and empathy for what it means to be human like we are. In short, they are describing a God who doesn't seem to be in the least like Jesus. A Jesus who actually is pretty much the very opposite of all of these things. A Jesus who is generous, gracious and kind knowing our weaknesses and knowing our doubts. The problem with all of these ways of thinking is that they inevitably make us feel like failures. Because if that is what faith is, then we will never succeed. But I don't think our God is a God of the you will never succeed at this. Any more than a loving parent would say that to their child. No loving parent would ask their child to do things that they were guaranteed to fail at. So now let's change tack a little bit and look at what the biblical word for faith does mean. And then based on that, we will look at what it means to live by faith and how we can all have confidence that we can do that. And as we go along, we'll also see how that way of looking at it makes sense of some of those Bible verses about faith and how it resolves some of the problems that we've just been looking at. So the New Testament Greek word that's usually translated as faith in English is pistis. And pistis had a range of meanings in the ancient world, which did include the belief that God could do something, but believing was not actually its main focus. Its normal meaning then was to do with trust and loyalty and unshakable commitment. So if you're looking for a a word that, that we could use instead to mean the same thing instead of faith, then the best word to do that, the best synonym, would be trust. That conveys the same basic idea. So in other words, it's to do with keeping faith and being faithful. And it's a bit like how the the biblical idea of love is not defined by what's going on up here in our thoughts. In the same way, neither is the word faith. They're both defined by what we do or don't do. Whether we've got it or we haven't got it is shown not by doing a brain scan, but by what we actually do as a consequence. So a person of faith is someone who acts in ways that are faithful to what they believe, whose actions out there show everybody the decisions that we are clinging to in here. So that being the case, you may not be surprised to know that in both Greek and Hebrew in the Bible, they only had one word for our two words, faith and faithfulness. So we, we have two, don't we? And we see 
the ideas that they're conveying as actually quite different. But that wasn't the case then. They just had the one. So when it comes to translating the original language into our English Bibles, pistis can be translated either faith or faithfulness. So the translators have to make a choice as to which one they're going to go with in each case. So, for example, in Habakkuk 2.4, that's the verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament as well, in the 1984 edition of the NIV, it says the righteous shall live by faith, with a footnote, or by faithfulness. But then in the 2011 edition, they flipped it round. The righteous shall live by faithfulness, with a footnote, or by faith. So faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to the way that a person would live if what they believed was true. And when we start to think about living by faith as living by a faithfulness, living in a way that shows trust in what we believe, and more especially in whom we believe, then that completely changes things, how we think about what faith is. It's a little bit like in marriage. You know, when we talk about being faithful or unfaithful, that is not defined by our mental beliefs about marriage. It's defined by what we do and don't do. And, in that context, it is relational. It's what we do and don't do in relation to the person with whom we've entered into that covenantal relationship. So can you see the parallel? So our doubts and our questions and our uncertainties and, and even our fears become somewhat irrelevant because faith is not about eliminating them. It's about the choices that we make as to how we're going to live in spite of them. So let's finish with looking at a couple of Bible passages just to see how all of that would work in practice. Let's start with Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, where the father of a boy who was demon-possessed and couldn't speak comes to Jesus. And it starts with a short conversation about what's wrong with the boy, and, and then the father says this, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Not exactly unshakable mental certainty there, I would suggest. If you can do anything. I mean, that is barely a standard pass, let alone a strong pass. And much as I'm sure we all want to be biblical, our credibility in the prayer meeting will not be greatly enhanced by starting off the way that this father did. Dear Lord, if you can do anything. And then Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. So Jesus is kind of testing him out here. And so far, I would suggest it's not looking good based upon that standard way that people think about having faith. But notice here that Jesus' focus is on the man believing what's possible. And then he responds to Jesus with an astonishing statement. Or at least it, it would be astonishing in the context of this standard way of thinking. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. So it seems that a high score on that faith scale 
And an unshakable mental certainty is not what Jesus was looking for. And that the presence of some unbelief alongside belief doesn't actually seem to have been a problem. Jesus simply wanted this man to believe in what was possible. And that brings us neatly on to the other side of the coin here. The opposite of faith is not too little faith on that faith scale. The opposite of faith is deliberate unbelief. It's choosing an unbelief that says God can't do this, God won't do this. It's impossible. It's a refusal to believe. And because faith is relational, it's a refusal to believe in the goodness of God. Which is why it says in Matthew 13 that when Jesus was in Nazareth, he only did a few miracles there because of their unbelief. So it's not about something called faith being a powerful force that makes things happen. It's about deliberate and active unbelief being a powerful force that stops things happening. It's kind of like a free will thing. Unbelief is saying no to God and saying no to divine possibilities, that it can't happen and it won't happen. In the Mark 6 account of that same passage, it says that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief because why would you do that? But the good news about lack of faith, if I can call it that, is that it's not something that we can just fall into by accident. It's not a grade five or below on the faith scale. It's a deliberate decision not to believe. Which I would suggest actually makes it kind of easy to live by faith, does it not? We cultivate expectancy. We pray expectantly. We allow for the possibility of the impossible. And all the time we show that we're continuing to trust Jesus. We live by faith, by living the way that a person would live who believed what we believe is true. So we do faithfulness in our lives because faith is a doing word not a thinking word. And we do that whatever our inner doubts and questions and uncertainties might be. Time is nearly up, but I just want to close by looking at a proper translation of that verse that we looked at in the Living Bible a bit earlier, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And as always, of course, to know what something means, we have to put it in the context and the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 is about what we call the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Uh, if you want to, as homework, do read it later. We haven't got time to go through the whole thing now. But what you will find there is example after example of people whose faith was defined not by what they thought, but by what they did. The decisions that they made especially when the chips were down, as to how they were going to live and what they were going to do. In every single example, you'll see that faith was a doing something word.
living right and doing what was right, even though you had doubts and fears. And the evidence of their faith was not that they got what they wanted. Their faith wasn't in faith delivering the right results. The evidence of their faith was in their loyalty and faithfulness to God. Whatever happened as a result. And that whatever happened is actually quite sobering. Let's have a look at the end of that chapter. It says some of these heroes of faith were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised at the time. Read that chapter and it has nothing at all to do with a confident assurance that something they wanted was going to happen, as Kenneth Taylor put it. And this will help us to make sense of that verse that we started with, first verse of Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Which is basically two ways of saying the same thing. Faith happens, living by faith is happening, when we turn things that we can't see into something that we can see. We can't see God and we can't see the future. But our lives become the substance. Our lives become the evidence, something tangible that you can see. Faithfulness becomes something that we are and we do, rather than faith being something that we have. So what would doing faith look like in someone who is living faithfully to what they believed being true? They would be unbelievably generous. They would be committed to the kingdom above and beyond their commitments to anything else. They would be expectant people. They would be people who believe in possibilities because they believe in a God of the possible. They would always believe the best. They would love Jesus. They would love his church. They would even love their enemies. And they would want to prioritise being a servant Because Jesus said that in the kingdom, that was the best possible job you could have. So that's the one that they would want. In fact, you'd have to go out of your way to stop them serving. James, would you like to come and join me? Thanks. So faith is not about unshakable mental certainty. It's not about claiming something as a promise and never allowing any doubts to come into your head just in case you lose it. Faith is trust. Faith is faithfulness. Faith is a doing word. 
We put our faith in a person, Jesus. We don't put our faith in faith. Living by faith is living faithfully to what we believe being true. Living faithfully to a God who we can't see and a future we can't see. And doing it, whatever happens. Setting aside any doubts and any questions because we will always have them. And even, at times, setting aside the fears. In Habakkuk 2, it says, the righteous shall live by faithfulness. And then in Habakkuk 3, it tells us what that looks like in practice. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lay empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, which for an agrarian society is pretty much describing what complete disaster looks like. Even if all these things happen, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And this is living by faith.